Hi, this is Violet Lang. Welcome to my podcast, The Pleasure Path, all about love, dating, relationships, and femininity. I help successful spiritual women find their pleasure and their power to create healthy partnership. In this episode, I reveal the six incidents of sexual abuse or harassment that I did not report, and I also share why. I also discuss shame and the importance of being upfront with our past. Radical transparency equals radical transformation. This episode is being recorded on Friday after the Kavanaugh testimony when the Senate committee decided to pass it for a vote to the Senate. So I'm feeling very fired up and very determined to speak out about sexual trauma and to empower women to heal and to know that they are worthy of healthy love and protection and safety as they move through the world. I was really inspired by Dr. Ford's testimony. She didn't show up hardened or defensive or trying to prove a point. She showed up, as far as I could tell, as being very soft and feminine and knowing that what she was doing was a great act of courage and also terrifying. I mean, she even said, like, I'm terrified and I don't blame her. So many women barely have the courage to even tell anyone in their life when something traumatic sexually happens to them. Maybe a therapist, maybe a trusted friend, if they're lucky. Most women just keep that inside and there's many reasons why. And that's why that hashtag, why I didn't report, came to be so popular. And I'm going to be talking about that later in today's episode. But before we go into all that, I just want to preface this by saying that if you at any point in this episode feel triggered or bothered, or something is coming up for you, I would of course love for you to still listen to the episode. But the number one thing is self care. So I want you to honor yourself. If you're feeling uh, that you need some space, don't listen to the rest of this podcast, you know, reach out for support. And uh, I can send you some resources. So with that said, I want to share the sexual experiences, the sexual assault experiences that I encountered and that I experienced, because I think it's important that we just talk about these things. No one is immune from this. No one. If you're a man, lots of your female friends, probably even your daughter, maybe even your sister or even your mother, they've been a victim of sexual assault. And for women, you've probably experienced sexual assault. Because a third of women supposedly have experienced this and two thirds of women don't report, which again, the math doesn't necessarily add up, but it's an absolute epidemic of the women that I work with. Over half of them typically have experienced some sort of sexual harassment or sexual assault. I know that I've experienced, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six incidences. And so I'm going to talk about those. I'm also going to talk about why I didn't report. We'll talk about trauma in the nervous system. What's up with these spiritual people that are saying, uh, don't, don't do me too. It just means that you're a victim. Uh, like don't identify yourself with a victim. Like you need to just get over it. So we're going to talk about that, talk about spiritual bypassing and then toxic masculine and toxic feminine. And also we'll talk about that triangle between the victim, the hero and the perpetrator. So buckle up. This is going to be uh, an intense one, but it's okay. I don't want to shy away from that. We spend most of our life's lives walking on eggshells, especially as survivors. And so today we're going to go pretty deep. 
So I'm just going to start with my journey. I was a survivor and am a survivor of sexual abuse that started around the age of three until around the age of six. And I did not have direct memories of this right away. My memories began when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I had always felt that there was something a little bit strange. You know, with my sexuality, I would always push men away. I was really repressed sexually. Um, I had a lot of triggers and, and other things that would happen when I would contact my sexual energy or be with my sexual energy. So I'm not going to go into all of that because I can do a separate podcast just on that particular thing. But before it even came up fully, I had tried to seek the help of a therapist. And I told her, you know, I'm having these memories. And she said, well, you know, it doesn't sound that bad. And so because a licensed therapist told me it doesn't sound that bad, I thought, okay, I guess I just need to deal with this on my own, or I guess there must be something wrong with me. This was a female therapist in Santa Monica, California, and she just didn't have my back or she felt overwhelmed. I don't, I'm not going to make up excuses for her or what her motivation was. Um, but then for about a year and a half or two years, I just tried to handle it on my own. I became a Reiki teacher. I did lots of yoga. I read a ton of books I couldn't find very many books at all about surviving trauma. Courage to Heal is a great one. I know it's a little bit older, um, but there just wasn't that many resources out there, which I found really shocking. So eventually I went through another breakup. And when I went through that breakup, I realized I have to get help. And that's when I found my somatic therapist and my somatic therapist. And I really worked through the memories of what had happened when I was younger. But when I was younger, I was sexually abused. And the person put their hand on my mouth and told me to be quiet. They actually said, shut up, shut up, shut up. I had a sense that if I told anyone, they would kill me. So I almost like heard these words. If you tell anyone, I will kill you as long as, uh, as well as words like, well, you're special. And so I'm loving you this way. Uh, Now, whether those were actual words or if those are just meanings that my psyche was making for the traumatic charge and the memory that was coming up, I did have visual memories and I had physical or, or, you know, somatic based memories about these things happening. And I was molested. I wasn't raped. I was just, you know, touched and fondled inappropriately. And I believe I'm not, I'm not 100% clear, but I believe that I may have also performed sexual acts or or, um, been forced to. Now, All of this when you're going through the remembering process is totally confusing and bewildering, mainly because of the relationship that you have with the person who's your abuser and the shame that you feel. And I'm not going to go into on this episode a lot about traumatic memories, but there's some articles that I'll post in the show notes that are really important. And I just want you to know that if you do have things come up, please find a really good therapist who is not going to minimize or placate. And this is one of the reasons I'm really passionate about holding women accountable in all of this as well. And I'm not saying I'm mad at women or that we need to turn against women. But what I'm saying is that this is a system wide issue, which means that it doesn't do any good to just bash on men. What we need to do is look at all the ways that we personally, individually and collectively are turning away from the things that are difficult. We're minimizing, we're placating, we're softening, or we're, you know, we're just turning a blind eye to what really needs to be addressed. Because it cost me another two years of my life and another failed relationship before I actually found the support and resources. And had I not found that therapist, I honestly don't know what I would have done. Like I would have, I'm not sure, my life would not be the way that it is right now. Uh, I would still be suffering. I would probably still have issues with eating and 
um, mild eating disorder stuff and body image issues issues. And I sure as hell would not be in a healthy relationship. I can, I can tell you that much. So that happened when I was younger and it obviously affected my ability to trust, affected my nervous system and my ability to not get super freaked out or triggered or scared. Uh, specific times of day, like 11 o'clock at night, I would oftentimes just feel this creepy sensation, kind of like I was like a lizard or something. It was just this like numbness, like don't touch me, especially if there was lighting, like a, like a bedside table light that looked like a nightlight. It was like a soft lighting. I just, I mean, I want to gag just even thinking about it and, and talking about it. Um, so that was, that was the, the major trauma that happened. But then when I was 13, there was a boy in gym class. And when we would have to run laps, he would always run behind me and grab my butt. And I remember giggling, um, not because I liked it, because I was so embarrassed and shy. And I think a lot of times sexual assault survivors or sexual trauma survivors, they feel embarrassed. They feel shy. They don't necessarily know what to do. I wish that I could have just turned around to that person and said, F off or pushed him away. Or I was running for God's sake. Like I could have just run to the teacher, but he kept kind of bumping into me. It wasn't like he was holding my, my butt the entire time. He would just keep kind of bumping into me. And I just still remember the flush of heat of embarrassment rising up into my cheeks. I remember the shorts that I was wearing, these little, um, you know, workout shorts. And I remember just feeling so confused. Like, am I supposed to like this? Did he, did, did he do this because he likes me? Did he do this because he's, you know, um, complimenting me? It was like this weird, like, why is he doing this? But also because of my earlier trauma thinking, well, I mean, I guess this is maybe what people do if, if they like you. So I had really internalized a lot of this um, confusion about how someone is appropriately showing that they care or that they like you or that, that they love you. And then, uh, I, this next one, I don't like talking about, um, in college, I was admittedly drunk. I was not sober. I had gone to a fraternity parter party. I was not blackout drunk, but I was drunk. Um, and I went home or went back to the, his room with one of the men at the party and he and I were starting to kiss. And I said, I just realized like, no, I don't want to be here. So I said, no. And I kind of tried to push him away. And he started fondling me and, you know, he was pretty drunk and I was pretty drunk as well. And so I finally just left and, and went home. But I remember that because it really affected my college years of thinking, wow, okay, A, I'm really lucky. I'm lucky that he didn't force sex on me and rape me. Uh, I'm also really lucky that I was aware enough that I could have left. And I'm also really lucky that I didn't beat myself up over it. Like I didn't, in that incident, I didn't tell myself, oh, it's my fault. You know, I was asking for it or blah, blah, blah. Some of that mental, you know, chatter that I had experienced earlier, uh, just, it wasn't as present this time. I, it was pretty clear, like we were two consenting adults, but I was not in consent and we were too mature or, you know, mature adults, so to speak. And that also was a time where I actually brought it up to one of the older women in the sorority who was boyfriend, uh, girlfriends of her boyfriend was in the same house as the guy that this happened with. And she took it very seriously. They talked about it with him and everything. And so I felt very, um, safe isn't the right word. I don't think I really ever felt safe, you know, on a college campus as a, as a woman. Um, but I, 
I at least felt heard that she, that she brought it up to him. And then when I was working in my twenties, there was a man who uh, was a colleague of mine and he and another colleague of mine, two men were in a conference room and we were talking about something related to work. And then he made a comment about me giving him a blowjob, and it had nothing to do with anything that we were talking about. And again, I just remember this flush of embarrassment and shame and heat rising up to my cheeks and that same kind of nervous laughter. I had no idea how to stand up for myself. And so I basically just left the conference room. I just like kind of looked down, gathered my stuff and left. And the man who made the comment just stayed in the room. And the other man in the room followed me out and he said, oh my God, I am so sorry. That is awful. And I was like, yeah, I know it is. But again, I was so embarrassed that I basically just said, yeah, okay. And I like ran to my desk. So on one hand, it felt good that this man noticed that and spoke up for me. But on the other hand, I didn't feel well equipped. I don't know why. I just, I felt kind of incapable at the time of really taking action on my behalf. It didn't, it didn't register to me as something severe, maybe because of the molestation that happened when I was young, um, maybe because of the thing in college, but I myself was just minimizing within myself and my nervous system wasn't ready to go into the anger and the sadness and the hurt and obviously the trauma from earlier. And so I just kind of laughed it off, stuffed it down and went back to my desk. Uh, But I really had a deep level of trust in the man who came out to say, this is not okay. I never followed up with him to see if he said that to the man who made the comment. If he said, dude, what the hell? That is not okay. I think in hindsight, it would have been really great if he did that in the meeting and just stood up for me in front of the man in the meeting. But I was grateful that he at least came out and said that to me um, afterwards. But it definitely made me feel somewhat eerie. It's this strange feeling uh, walking through the workspace and thinking, okay, at any point in a meeting, even if there's multiple people, someone could make a sexual comment about me. And I still just feel kind of like this iciness in my belly, just even talking about that, about that fear and about that trepidation and that uncertainty and definitely getting a sense of like, okay, this is a man's world. And this is a fortune 500 company. And this is a huge company. And probably if I would have reported it, they would have taken it seriously. I would have hoped so, but I don't really know. And again, I could have reported, but this is part of why I didn't report. And then when I was dating someone, this was in between the therapist who told me, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And then my second therapist, who was excellent. In between then, I was dating a man and we went on a vacation to one of his friend's weddings. We actually went to Italy and we were at the wedding. And it was, I think it was the afternoon before the wedding. I can't remember uh, exactly what day it was. It was either the day before the wedding or the day of the wedding, but before the wedding had started and we were making love and we were not using protection, but we had an agreement that he would uh, pull out and he didn't, he totally ejaculated inside of me. And I was furious. I looked at him and I was like, what did you just do? And I pushed him away from me. And he shamed me for it. He said, oh, you liked it. I know you want that. I know you want to have a baby. You're secretly hoping that you'll have my baby. And I didn't realize at the time what a violation of trust this was. I just knew that I felt disgusted. I couldn't wait to get home to the United States and break up with him. It didn't cross my mind to just get on a plane right then. Um, Not because I didn't take it seriously, but I think there was still a part of me that 
felt attached to him that I, I don't know, I needed to just, the mentality was I need to just get through this and then I'll deal with it on my own. And I think that's a big thing that survivors go through is I need to just get through this and then I'll deal with it on my own. It's a way that we dissociate. It's a way that we minimize our own pain. It's a way that we just try to fucking hold on for dear life when we're going through something traumatic so that once we're away from the perpetrator, we can then heal or we can, you know, take care of ourselves. And it's actually a response in the nervous system. The nervous system has fight or flight, but when we can't fight or flight, we freeze. And a a difference between fight or flight and freeze is that freeze is like not, you're not just playing dead. It's almost like you are dead. It's like your breathing rate slows down. Everything slows down. You're not using your brain in the same way. You don't have the same access to your frontal cortex, your prefrontal cortex, excuse me. And so there's also this thing, not only for freeze, but also please and appease. So typically if we can't fight or flight, we will first try to please and appease. And if we can't please and appease, or if the shock or the severity is too much, then we will go straight into freeze. So a lot of my behavior was in hindsight, pleasing and appeasing. I was pleasing and appeasing the boy in gym class when I was 13. I was pleasing and appeasing the one who was groping me in college up on his lofted bunk bed. I was pleasing and appeasing my boyfriend at the time who came inside me without me asking. And I was definitely pleasing and appeasing the person who molested me when I was young. So this please and appease response was just conditioned, not only for me sexually, but also just in my life. I would oftentimes just do what people ask me to do or try to make other people feel better. And I definitely have a strong rebellious streak. So that obviously came through as well. Um, but many times I was in this please and appease mode and, and mindset. And for the rest of that trip, uh, it was unfortunate because it was a Saturday and none of the pharmacies were open and it was a weekend, like a holiday weekend. And so nothing was open until three or four days later. And so the plan B or the emergency contraception it wouldn't have even worked because by the time we found a pharmacy that was open, it was four or five days later. And this whole time, this person is like, oh, you want a baby with me. You liked it. It was fine. And I was fuming. And then amidst our fighting, come to find out that he had actually been cheating on me with his ex-girlfriend uh, earlier in our relationship. So that's a separate part of the story. Um, but basically, we got back and then I broke up with him. And then when I broke up with him, he did not take it very well. He texted me on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning, excuse me, at 7 a.m. and said, I really want to see you. And I said, well, maybe we can get coffee later today, but I can't right now. And he said, well, I'm actually right outside of your house. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. So I didn't respond back to him. This was just my thoughts inside. I was like, okay, how am I going to deal with this? And before I could even really figure out how I was going to deal with it, he had taken the, um, he had climbed through the window. I can't remember if there was a screen that he busted through or if it was an air, like an in-unit air conditioning, in-home air conditioning. But all of a sudden I was, I heard this big noise and he was climbing into the window that's beside the door, the front door, the front door was locked, but he just climbed in through the side and my whole nervous system freaked out. And when I say freaked out, I didn't yell at him and start hitting him because he was huge. He's like six, four, six, five, and like 220 pounds. But he had this crazy look in his eyes And I really wasn't sure what's going to happen, you know, sexually or violence or whatever. And so my please and appease instantly kicked on. And I said, um, you know what? I really love you. I'm so glad that you're here. Let me just, let me give you a hug and then we can figure this out. 
And I feel sick to my stomach even saying that because it's so disgusting to try to please your perpetrator. I mean, you just feel so ashamed, but it's almost this innate response. It's a survival mechanism. And so I gave him a hug and then he left and we, I think, made a loose plan to get coffee. And then I immediately called the police and I texted him and said, never call me again. I'm never come by again. Never um, text me again. I never want to hear from you again. And I deleted his number and, uh, and all of that. Uh, but that was an example of if a man does something to me sexually and then I leave him or leave the situation, then I am going to be punished. So if I had reported sooner about the sexual thing, who knows? Would he have still broken into my home? Maybe. Would he have hurt me when he broke into my home? Would he have raped me? Maybe. I'm not sure. This is an example of why women don't report. An example of why I didn't report is that A, we were dating at the time. And so somehow that minimized it in my mind. And then B, he, you know, he, um, yeah, he was an intimidating guy and he broke into my house and, and was basically when I gave him the hug, we were in my bedroom and I was kind of against the wall. He didn't push me against the wall, but he kept moving towards me so that I was kept backing away and basically backed into the wall. And so this was in between my bed and my dresser. Uh, and that's where he had that crazy look in his eye. And I was basically just doing anything I could to placate him, including giving him a hug, telling him how important he was to me, that I still still wanted to be with him, that I loved him, and that we would get coffee later. Um, so that was a really traumatic incident. And that's actually what spurred me to go back to therapy and then work through the issues that I had with the sexual abuse from earlier. Another example is that in grad school, um, there were certain men that would make jokes saying, oh, I've heard you've been with so-and-so. I've heard you've been with this. You've been with this person. So basically slut shaming, even though the people they were telling me about are not people that I even knew. I didn't even know this person's name. It was a large grad school. There's 900 people there. Um, Harvard, I went to Harvard business school. And so if people say things like, well, this person went to a really good school, he wouldn't have done these things. Complete and total bullshit. Like nothing happened to me violently or physically at that school, but there were plenty of misogynist men there who would say things like, yeah, I've heard you had sex with all these people, or I've heard you get around and all of this. And of course I had sex with people when I was there. Like I'm an adult woman. I can have sex with whoever I want, but I was not having sex with most of the people that they were saying and claiming that I was. So lots of slut shaming, lots of, uh, of put downs and lots of sexualizing something that didn't need to be sexualized. So those are my incidents growing up when I was younger from age three to six, getting my butt grabbed in gym class, uh, someone at school or college, sorry, you know, up on the, his bunked loft bed, groping me, the man at work, making a blowjob comment in front of another man, the boyfriend that I had who came inside me without my permission and then broke into my home when I was there and, and kind of backed me into a corner and then the men in grad school who said that, you know, were slut shaming me and said that I had been with other men, all these other men. So the reason I didn't report is because pretty much through my whole life, I never really learned how to stand up for myself in that way. I didn't even learn like, okay, this is wrong. This is bad. Like I get to choose who touches my body and who doesn't. I get to choose when I get impregnated and when I don't. I get to choose who I sleep with and I get to be in a workplace that's free from sexual comments and innuendos. And I believe that I have it light. Like these incidents are in light of everything else that women have gone through. And again, it's not about comparison because I don't think that suffering is relative, but 
we all have, we have the degree of suffering that we have and, and we can't necessarily understand someone else's suffering or minimize ours because of someone else's or vice versa. So if you're listening to this and you're like, well, all I had was, was something else. Like don't minimize your own suffering. Like your suffering matters. We don't want to stay there forever. We don't want to create a lot of meaning around the pain in terms of, of that, but we need to be able to say this happened to me and this you know, I am a victim. And that's why I get upset with, you know, when Tony Robbins was like, oh, people who are a part of me too are just victims. That's easy for him to say as an entitled privileged white male. And Tony Robbins is like the father of the coaching industry. And I know he's done a ton of good work. So I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. But when people who are part of the authority and happen to be male and most sexual assault happens by males, it's easy for them to say, oh, don't be a victim. But the truth is, in order to heal, we need to be able to say, this happened to me. I was a victim. I didn't ask for this to happen. I'm not bad. I didn't create this on purpose. Like, this happened to me, and I need to heal from it. But I found that until we can acknowledge that I was a victim, we can't move past that. We have to go into the state of suffering in order to move past the state of suffering. And that's why we have so much crap going on right now is because people who have received and been a victim of sexual and others terms of forms of abuse themselves who haven't healed it have this shadow. It's this hidden blind spot where they haven't processed their own trauma. So they reenact it on others, whether it's when they're drunk or when they're sober. There's things that I've done in my life that I am not proud of. Like, yes, I have been blackout drunk before. Yes, I have uh, done things like when I was sorority president, the younger incoming class they hazed each other. No one in the sorority hazed, hazed the incoming freshmen, but the incoming freshmen hazed each other. And we got fined for that. And it was really difficult to go through that knowing that people under my leadership had gotten, you know, had, had been hazing each other. So I, that, that happened. Um, another thing, I just feel like getting it all off, all of my chest, because I want you to know I'm not perfect. And I'm not trying to blame, uh, blame everyone self-righteously. Um, one of my bosses at one of my corporate jobs, right before I was leaving to go to grad school, he wanted me to read this huge contract. And I lied to him. I said, I read it. And I really only read like the first few pages. And then the last pages, I kind of like skimmed it for important clauses, but I did not read it. And he said, did you read this whole thing? And I said, yes. So I flat out lied to him. Um, what else? When my husband and I separated, we weren't divorced yet. And I slept with other people. Uh, which was probably not the right moral and ethical thing to do. So I'm not going through this laundry list because I want you to lose all respect for me. Although if that's how you feel, I can't change that. But I just want to be totally transparent about the mistakes that I've made in my life, about the things that have happened to me. And we have to normalize shame. It's a huge problem is that people don't deal with their own personal traumas. They reenact reenact them or they project them onto others. And there's no place in our culture. We're not creating the places in our culture where we can talk about times when we messed up and have it be safe. So if we can't deal with our own shame, then it's really going to be toxic for the people that were around. And I saw that a lot in the Kavanaugh hearing is just him and a lot of people in that room, not being able to deal with their own shame. And so leading to a lot of bullying, manipulation, uh, over excessive use of NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming and cognitive framing, uh, in order to gaslight or in order to uh, take and change the frame of reality. And a lot of that happens when we're terrified. And of course, those men are terrified because they've got a lot to lose and because there's so much that's been covered up. Whew, I just need a breath. I'm just noticing all this energy in my body. So if you're listening to this, take a few breaths with me. Ooh, send the energy from your head down to your heart 
down to your hips and your legs. Maybe unhinge the jaw and relax the mouth and take a few breaths. Mm. Okay, <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit more about this triangle that's sometimes called the drama triangle. It's the victim, the perpetrator, and the hero. And so a lot of times we want to be the hero to rescue the victim from the perpetrator. But the problem is that these roles change. So the perpetrator will often say, well, I'm actually a victim. So Kavanaugh did that so many times yesterday. Well, I'm a victim. It's, you know, it's not my fault. This has been hard on my family. All the things that he was saying to put him in more of like, this is so hard on me. I'm a victim sort of role. And they will oftentimes do that to confuse people and to create sympathy for them as the perpetrator. Um, when I confronted my perpetrator from when I was young, the three-year-old to six-year-old time, he did the same thing. He, he turned it into him being a victim. Oftentimes, these people will have explosive reactions because it's the trigger in their nervous system, the charge that they don't know how to deal with and handle. And so there's a lot of anger and defensiveness and aggression. So the perpetrator tries to act like a victim in order to switch roles. Now, if there's a bystander, so if it's a victim, the perpetrator, and the hero, um, the hero is supposedly the bystander. But sometimes the bystander is not actually a hero. Sometimes the bystander is an accomplice. You know, they're, they're just turning the other way. They know something is happening, but they're not speaking up. And that's also why so many women don't report and why I didn't report, is because when there is someone that's standing by but not being an advocate, it makes you think that you're crazy and it makes you feel that you're being ganged up on. Now, with the exception of the work environment where the man in the conference room came out and said, I'm so sorry, that was not okay. That really, that really um, was great. You know, I felt supported in that way. But in the other instances, I felt invalidated, uh, especially with the first therapist. And then when I did confront the person who molested me from ages three to six, they first had a very eerie reaction. And then said, well, I love you too much to do that. I wouldn't have done that. I love you. As if that that's just because you love something, you could love someone, you can never do something harm to them. I mean, there's lots of parents that say that they love their children and then are, you know, abusive to them. And there's lots of uh, people out there, police officers and otherwise, who are using this like, well, it's good for you or I love you or these excuses to justify poor behavior. So they they said those things. And then they were pretty dramatic, um, angry and outburst. But what was fascinating to me is that the other person in the room, the other person who um, would have known about all of this that was going on, just totally put their head in their hands. They didn't, there was no shock. There was no, what? What? That couldn't have happened. It was just complete shame response. Head in hands, crying for like 10 minutes. No rebuttal no defending uh, the person who was a perpetrator. So this person who was supposed to be the hero was actually the accomplice. And so it gets very, very messy, all of these different roles. And it makes it really hard as a survivor to feel like it's safe to report, to feel like it's safe to know kind of what's going on and how to take care of yourself. And I lived for many years just feeling in denial. And still when I talk about it, it's getting less so. But still, when I talk about it, I will go to bed at night after I've been doing maybe some deep work with one of my teachers, processing and releasing the trapped energy in my nervous system. I will go to bed and I will pray that this didn't actually happen. Like, oh no, maybe I, maybe I did just make all this up. 
maybe it's maybe it's not really true and everything can go back to being what I wanted it to be, which was normal and healthy and safe. And then it's this terrible sinking reality that it wasn't safe and it did happen and it wasn't okay. And my brain just wants to make it a fantasy. It just wants to, I mean, make reality a fantasy and make fantasy a reality. Like I'm, I'm clinging to that cognitively for so many of, of my years that even with all the work that I've done to heal this and reveal this so I can be an advocate for others, I still will have the feeling of shame that maybe I'm crazy because it's easier in some ways to feel crazy than to go against the grain of society and your family and your workplace. It's easier to take that on of being the crazy person or being broken or being uh, just, I'm just going to stuff it down. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen than to try to confront the system. It takes massive energy to confront the system within yourself and also energy within advocates around you. And luckily I had a support system of my therapist, my husband, my friends who were able to hold space for me as I was confronting my perpetrator and hold space for me as I was going through my deep healing. So if you find yourself in a role where someone is telling you that they're the victim, just take a step back, give yourself a little bit of space Make sure you're not internalizing their shame because that's oftentimes what will happen is a perpetrator will shame you and bully you into thinking that it's your fault or that you're crazy or that it never happened or that you don't love them. They'll pull every single card that they can get to get away with it and to have you try to feel sympathy for them. And that's part of what happens when we have this toxic masculine. This toxic masculine will bully, it will control, they will take whatever they want without regard for other people. This is why I'm really passionate about doing work around the masculine and feminine. And I know for some of you, it might sound a little bit antiquated, like we're so far beyond gender roles. Like, why do we need to work on this? Well, we need to work on this because there's massive shadow in both of those energies, the toxic masculine and the toxic feminine. And if we don't work on it, we're leaving all this energy on the table that we could be using to fuel this next revolution where there is no sexual abuse or trauma. There is no sexual assault, sexual assault or rape. We talk about things when people do things like this, they're talked about and those people are punished and we create a culture and an environment where people don't even need to do these things because people are getting their sexual needs met because they're able to talk about sex in a healthy way. It's not repressed from the church or our society or our government where people have the freedom to do what they want with their bodies, whether it's, you know, getting an abortion or whether it's choosing to work out or whether it's choosing not to get an abortion. Like each person gets to have their choice in that. So I just want to wrap up our podcast today by just talking about some ways to be with yourself during this time when so much trauma and wounding is coming up for our collective. And one of those ways is to really deeply care for yourself. And I know that gets tossed around a lot, like self-care. What I mean by that is taking really good care of your physical body, getting exercise, getting sleep, drinking water, eating healthy foods. Another way to take care of yourself is to take care of your energy body. And that means being around people who you trust and who support you and who help you to know that you matter and that your voice matters and that your story matters. Another way to protect your energy 
is to minimize the amount of time that you're spending on social media, which I know is hard to do. It's hard for me to do myself with everything going on. I feel very activated and, and wanting to be an advocate in this. So take care of your physical body, take care of your energetic body by being around people and consuming immediate information that really support you. And then you can also protect yourself, protect yourself with not only who you're spending time with, but protect yourself with how far you stretch yourself thin. So oftentimes we just, we run ragged because we're focused on work or we have our kids or we have everything else going on. And we don't even realize when we've gone past our limits. And then another aspect that's really important is to get help, whether it's a somatic therapist, whether it's a teacher who does deep shadow work, like one of my teachers, Robert Augustus Masters, he's amazing. He has a new book out called, I think it's called Bringing Light to the Shadow or Bringing Light to the Dark. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, Getting help is so important. I mentor women through working through sexual trauma and healing and and working on their healthy feminine. There's lots of uh, men out there who help men work through their shadow. My husband is one of them. His name is Jason Lang and the work that he does is excellent. And he and I lead shadow weekends together as well in LA where people can come and process the grief, the shame, the sadness, the hurt, the anger, all of the things that come up when we touch into these deeper wounds. So what I want to leave you with is a reminder that even though today's topic was all about sexual abuse, trauma, why I didn't report, and the nervous system and spiritual bypassing, it's really important to still find your pleasure. So amidst all of this with the Kavanaugh testimony and Ford testimony, yesterday we went for a nice walk with our puppy and her friend puppy who's also here right now. We went to a beautiful music uh, performance in the Hollywood Hills last night. This guy does this thing called the earth harp, and he basically strings these giant strings from the sides of buildings or the side of a hill or the side of a pagoda, it was last night, and then connects it to this harp that he made or this um, this um, kind of platform that he made. And then he plays it and he plays this gorgeous music. So we're able to listen to that and see the sunset and have some sushi and uh, a little sparkling wine for me. Jason wasn't drinking. Um, And so having those times where we can soften and release and come back to our pleasure. And then today after the Senate committee meeting, when they decided to move it forward, but on the contention that there would be a one week uh, FBI investigation, I was feeling so much charge in my body. I hadn't even really fully gotten dressed yet for the day. And I just stood there with just my bra and my underwear on. I was about to put on, you know, my clothes for the day. And I just thought, feel this. I need to feel this. I need to feel the pain and the tenderness and the sadness and the rage and the grief of every woman and man who's ever been sexually assaulted, ever gone through any sexual trauma or any harassment. And so just stood there in my womb room, which is my office space. I call it the womb room because it's all about helping women, you know, connect to their bodies and everything. So just stood there in my womb room, looking at my pink curtains and the pillows on my floor and just feeling all of that energy of suffering flowing through my body and breathing into it and breathing out with it. And then I laid down for a moment and just massaged my temples and put on an eye mask and got a little bit of a, of cocoa butter, which I love. And just put some on my skin and give myself a little bit of a massage. And I decided to put on some music, the song Let It Go by um, the rendition by Birdie. I think it was originally by someone else, James Bay, I think. But I did the listen to the Birdie one. And 
it just awoken me this wave of grief. And I realized I have to dance to this song. I have to move this energy through my body. So one of the ways that we can transmute pain into pleasure and take action instead of getting lost in our suffering is to move our body and connect with our emotions. So I was connecting to the emotion of the song. I was connecting to the sadness. I was connecting to the pleasure through the cocoa butter and the cool eye pillow and the music. And I realized I just need, yeah, I just need to move my body and move through this. And so it felt sad and sexualized at the same time because it's all about sexual trauma. That's everything that's being unearthed. And there is a charge there and we can't deny that. And I am a sexual woman with my trauma and without my trauma. And so I, I recorded a little video, which you can find on my Facebook page of me moving this energy of sadness and rage and disgust through my body and primarily the sadness. And what I'm left with is just resolve. Like, yes, I'm angry. Yes, I'm sad. Yes, I'm tired of fighting this fight, but I am so freaking resolved. I am absolutely determined. There's not a day that I won't give love and receive love and make a stand for women and men and all human beings being respected and having their own space to grow, to heal, to process their shadow, to work with their shadow, and to not have to endure abuse. I mean, Kavanaugh clearly has gone through a lot of abuse himself. I obviously am not a therapist. I can't definitively make that claim. But just the way that he is responding to all of this with so many jerky movements and outbursts of anger, like that is not normal. That is someone who is not comfortable with the experiences that they've had in the past and who has, it's like a live wire. And so I feel actually a lot of compassion for him and everyone else who doesn't know how to deal with what they have that's coming up because I went through experiences like that where things would come up and I didn't know how to deal with them. So please do reach out and get support dance, move your body, connect the emotion, and then take action. Take powerful, consistent action and do not give up. Thanks for tuning in and turning on for healthy love because better relationships mean more power, more creativity, and a better planet. I'm here to end the suffering of abuse and loneliness, and it starts with you. Please subscribe to my show and leave a review. If you want more love, pleasure, and power in your life, go to violetlang.com forward slash talk. That's violetlang.com forward slash talk to sign up for a free Breakthrough to Love call. These are special deep dives only for women who are committed and ready for lasting love. If that's you, book your time now with me or my team.